0: Hello, and welcome to the Church Newtown Square podcast. If we can serve you in any way, or if you'd like to learn more about our church family or the Acts 29 network, please visit us at churchnsq.org. That's C-H-V-R-C-H-N-S-Q dot And now, let's listen in to today's teaching. Continuing our uh, sermon series this morning, Uh, Entitled Church Basics and what we're doing is we're focusing on the basics of Christian discipleship Christian discipleship the basics of what is biblical Christian discipleship last week Ricky taught that as biblical disciples We walk by faith. We communicate our faith in Jesus to others by the means of evangelism and apologetics Uh, he talked about communicating our faith to Jesus and in multiplying our faith to disciple others and and The way that we're growing in discipleship, the way that we mature as believers is through the ministry of the word, the ministry of the table, and the ministry of the spirit. Now we call this uh, series church basics because that's exactly what we want to be pursuing as a local church, the basics of Christian ministry. We, We don't need to do anything too flashy. We don't want to do anything beyond what the Lord has modeled for us and taught us. And so as a church, we're taking just this time before we jump into our next study uh, of uh, Isaiah uh, about what it is that we want to be known for. We want to be known as Christians who are rooted in God's Word, that we are gathered around God's table, and we are led by God's Spirit. And so as we are disciples rooted in God's Word, this morning I want to focus in on what it means to be rooted in relationship, or in other words, what is the ministry of the table What does it mean to to pursue the relational aspect of discipleship? The word shapes us, it transforms us, and the table binds us together. And so for those of you that are taking notes, here's four things that I want to point out this morning. One, that relationships have gospel impact. Relationships have gospel impact. And two, table implies relationship. In other words, I want to answer the question, what does it mean that when we say as a church word table spirit what do we mean by those words last week ricky unpacked word this morning i want to unpack for us table and then i want to point us to the table of jesus What does the table of jesus model for us what was it what is it today and how does it affect our discipleship as a church and then finally i just want to emphasize what does table fellowship look like in the life of our local church how do we translate what we see in the scriptures and what we see through Jesus and what he models for us and how do we translate that into the life of discipleship for this church So first I want to show you the impact of relationships Look with me at Mark chapter 3 verses 13 through 14 Jesus discipled many He taught and he spent time with them Mark here describes Jesus's method of discipleship like this in verse 13 he says that Jesus went up the mountain and he summoned those whom he wanted and they came to him. He appointed 12 whom he also named apostles or sent ones to be with him and to send them out to preach. Jesus, in his ministry, didn't just teach people, he spent time with them. He spent relational time with them, and he instructed them in the ministry of the Scriptures and of the Word, and he opened up to them what the Word promised about life and about the Messiah. And as Jesus set that model for discipleship, it continued on through the life of the church. The Apostle Paul continued in this pattern of discipleship as he went throughout the Roman Empire, as the gospel transformed his life, as Jesus impacted him. Paul took that to the known Roman world. Uh, turn with me really quickly to 1 Thessalonians. Just make a right turn. And after you get Mar- Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts, letters to the Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, and Ephesians, after the General Electric Power Company, then you come to the the, the T's. And it's in alphabetical order. So 1 and 2 Thessalonians, then First and Second Timothy and Titus. There you go. There's a lesson there for you. Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Verses 7 through 9, Paul carries this model of discipleship into his church planning strategy. And it's a classic passage where Paul talks vividly about his heart for the people in whom he invested in this city. Look with me at verse 8. He says that we cared so much for you that we were pleased to share with you not only the word of God, the gospel of God, but what? Our own lives as well because you had become so dear to us. Paul spent time teaching, but he also spent his life for them and with them. Second Corinthians, we'll make, a, make another left hand turn and go to Second Corinthians. We did a study in First uh, Corinthians chapter 11 through 14 uh, a few months ago, and you'll remember that the Corinthian church was not, by any stretch of the imagination, a perfect church. They were young Christians trying to figure it out trying to figure out how to follow Jesus in the context of their their city and there's a lot of things they got right and a lot of things they got wrong but in second corinthians in, in paul's letter back to them in, in chapter 4 verse 15 paul is making clear that all of the efforts that he he lays out uh, that we are weak and he says that that we are tra- we have this treasure this gospel in in jars of clay and then he describes his his circumstances that uh marked his life of evangelism and discipleship. And he tells them that uh, all of this, he makes clear that all of the effort of his, all of the pain and all of the work of evangelism and discipleship in church planting and pastoring was worth it for the sake of those who were not only his new brothers and sisters in Christ, but for those who have yet to believe. He says that all of our trials. Indeed, everything. Everything refers to everything that he just listed. Things that he uh, uh, says that they were struck but not destroyed. They were, they were, they were beaten. They were, they, they were always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. And all of this, everything is for whose benefit? It's for their benefit, for your benefit. He's saying that it's worth it because of you. And as grace extends through more and more people, we pray that it may cause thanksgiving to increase to the glory of God. So Paul says that grace extends how? How does grace extend? The grace of God extends to more people by spending more time with people, that it is gospel proclamation and life together. It's not just telling people something, it's also telling and modeling, living it out, helping them, and being with them in their context. You might be familiar with the phrase that people don't care what you know until they know that you care. People don't care what you know unless they know that you care. Paul knew this, Jesus knew this, the early church knew this. In fact, the impacts that we have with others, the the, the impact of of having relationships, intentional relationships with others has such an impact uh, that it's actually life-changing. You may not believe that about yourself, but it is true. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 just look a few verses down. This is a familiar passage to some. 2 Corinthians 5:18 through 21. He says that everything is from God who has reconciled us to himself. He's reconciled us to himself. That's important. That's why Christ came. He came to reconcile us back to God. And through Christ has given us the church The ministry, the service of reconciliation, that we are involved in reconciling people back to God, as we ourselves have been that. Verse 19, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world. That is, he was reconciling anyone in the world, irrespective of their nationality, their ethnicity, their language. He was reconciling those in the world back to himself. He did not count their trespasses against him. And he has committed this message, this gospel, this word of reconciliation to us, Paul says. Therefore, we are what? We are ambassadors. What do ambassadors do? They represent the authority, the message. And they live in the country or they live in the context to which that message or that friendship, that tie, that bind is kept. Ambassadors serve as those who build relationships intentionally. And so that is what God has done. That is is what gospel relationships do. That is what is the impact of intentional relationships. Someone who has yet to follow Christ needs to have a relationship with someone who does follow Christ and has the ability to be an ambassador for Christ. That's the impact of gospel relationships. And so when Josh talks about the importance of, on the front end of any freshman year of school, meeting someone who is kind to you, will show you around campus for no other reason than the fact that they love you and want to help you. Oh, and by the way, this is as Jesus would have me do to share the gospel, has a significant impact on people's lives. Some of you have come to Christ your freshman year at college. College is a significant time of life. And so first, we want to ask this question of ourselves, this model that's set for us. We want to we, we ask ourselves both individually and as a church, are you, who are you extending the grace of God to? Are you busy at work thinking about engaging yourself in, arranging your schedule for someone who needs the grace of God? How are you extending the grace of God to someone else? Is there someone that you serve as an ambassador for Christ? Because gospel relationships have gospel impact. Point number two. What does table mean? So when we talk about to being, uh, being known about those who gather around God's table when we think of table I want you to import into that word more than maybe what you might begin to think of as simply just the Lord's Supper or community or an annual picnic what does table mean for us? What does table imply? Well table implies relationships um, Every year, our friends from college have an annual Christmas dinner, and for the last 20-some years, uh, we have intentionally planned uh, a dinner together. We uh, take the time to, to pick a place, a time, and then, and then as we began to have kids, when we didn't have kids, it was super easy. We could stay up all the hours of the night. We'd go into the city. And then year after year, it got more difficult, more difficult, more difficult, to the point where we were just, it wasn't even Christmas dinner anymore. I think the last meal was in July. It was like, that's how complicated it got. But we were intentional about it because friendships need intentionality. Relationships need to be cultured. Our friends' Christmas dinner, as difficult as it might be, is something we look forward to every year, but it's it's because we're intentional about it. God is an intentional God, and God intentionally meets us where we're at, and He typically meets people through meals in the Scripture. He meets them where they're at, and as we do that, we do what God does. Let me me, uh, point out to you a few passages of Scripture. I'm not going to go there. We don't need to turn there, but some may be familiar, and some of them may not. But I want to tell you that God meets people in different ways over meals. God uses table fellowship. Throughout Scripture. He uses it to meditate uh, to mediate peace. He does this with Abraham. He comes to Abraham and and he barters with uh, Abraham about his his uh, his nephew Lot and says, listen, I'm not going to destroy this city uh, w- before Lot gets rescued. And so I'm going to mediate peace between Lot and myself. He does this through remembrance. He has the Passover meal. The the Jews would celebrate the Passover meal. and We'll touch on that in just a moment to remember the exodus God uses meals to restore broken relationships. Remember Joseph who was stuck in a pit and then he was raised out of the pit and now he's the basically second to Pharaoh and his brothers come and they need help. And it's over a meal that he restores broken relationships with the ones who put him in that pit. We think about King David and Saul's uh, one of Saul's relatives Mephibosheth who is lame and so David does as much as he can to show mercy to Saul's family But he brings him into the table and over a meal He says you are always going to sit with me at the table. There's peace between us Maybe think about Jesus Jesus meets Zacchaeus Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man was he He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord. He wanted to see right remember that song Zacchaeus was a tax collector. He was a friend of sinners and something about Jesus made Zacchaeus climb a tree and see him, and Jesus says, hey, I'm coming to your house. I want to have a meal with you. I want to sit at the table. God uses meals to meet those who are far from him. He even uses meals to meet with those or to engage with those who disagree with him. Think about the Pharisees. He's sitting at the table, Jesus is, with a Pharisee and his friends, and they're battering him with questions, and they're even um, criticizing a woman who comes in and lavishly worships over Christ. He even establishes new covenants. He says goodbye, and he celebrates his return in the, in the Last Supper, which we'll touch on. God uses table fellowship. He uses this relationship. He's intentional about meeting us where we're at so that, why? We might know him, so that we might sit at the table with him. Michael Reeves, in his book, Delighting in the Trinity, says this, that Christianity is not primarily about lifestyle change. It's not primarily about lifestyle change. It is about knowing God. To know and to grow and to enjoy God is what we are saved for. The the, the relationship, the meals in Scripture are not an end. They are a means to an end. They are a means to communicate friendship with God or the need for God or the extension of mercy. From God. Jonathan Edwards put it this way God's aim in creating the world was for Himself. This God's very self is found in giving, not taking, to have Himself, His life, and His goodness shared with us. And so throughout Scripture, meals with family and friends and even foes have purpose, and that purpose is always to bring us to the table of God. I'm not going to belabor this point because I think you're smart people and you can understand how meals shape people. Table fellowship, when we think about a table and we think about meal and we think about relationships, it is primarily about God sharing himself with us and all that he desires to give us of himself. He sits at the table and he gives us everything that we need. I used to meet regularly with some men. I still do. And when I was a student, I met regularly with Roger at Burger King. I would meet with uh, Chuck at Panera, and then I would meet some guys at uh, restaurants around the campus, uh, i.e. meet some men at Qdoba, at First Watch. Uh, the men that met with me when I was growing in my faith modeled for me a way in which I could sit with someone and and share my feelings share my thoughts share my ideas my failures and they would in response share their own failures and their own successes and their own understandings. and it was in the context of that the meal wasn't important I don't can't remember what Roger ordered or Chuck ordered I can't remember what I ate at Qdoba for lunch last week but what I do remember are the conversations I had that changed my life that impacted my heart that pointed me to Christ and so when we think about a meal around a table, when we think about table fellowship, that, that is what I want you to understand. That central to the understanding of Jesus' purpose in coming to us in the incarnation is about reconciliation. In fact, in Matthew chapter 22, verses 1-10, through 10, Jesus uses, again, another illustration, often about a meal, about what the purpose of the Son sent was. Jesus spoke to them in in parables and he said, the kingdom of heaven is like this. It's like a king who gave a a wedding banquet for his son. And he sends prophets out and servants to summon those who are invited and, and they end up rejecting the invitation. But then Jesus says that the king eventually says, look, since they're unworthy to come to my table, I want you to go out and invite everyone you find to the banquet, come to the table. And so the servants, Jesus says, go out and they go to the roads, and they gathered everyone they found, both evil and good. Those who were worthy of the gospel and those who were living uh, lives far apart from the gospel, invite them all so that they might be able to come to the wedding banquet. And Jesus says the wedding banquet is filled with guests. This is a, a revealing of God's heart. God is initiating. That's what it is about, is He is initiating, inviting people to dinner. Come over for dinner. Sit with me. Come to my table. I want to offer everything that I have. I want to to dig deep into the stores of my pantry. I want to bring everything that is good for you. More than likely, our meals are not going to find their way into the history books. But they certainly can be used in our lives to repair relationships. Meals can be used to strengthen relationships. They can be used to broker peace. They can even be used to perhaps find common ground with someone who you vehemently disagree with. And we see this because God models for us in Scripture and throughout all of the world still that the meals aren't the end, they are a means to an end, to celebration, to friendship, to peace, to light, and provision. And so when we think about table fellowship, that's what I want you to import into table. Church is a place where table means relationship, reconciliation. And and where we see this the most clearly, not only, but where we see it the most clearly is in the Lord's Supper, which is I want to go to next. But before we go there, I want to ask you this question. How can we use, both individually as families, neighbors, and as a church corporately, how do we use meals, the good gift of meals, for God's good purposes? Because you can leverage meals to accomplish a lot. In what ways can you bridge the gap between you and your neighbor, or you and your dorm mates, or you and your uh, employees or or the ones that employ you or or the ones that are in your neighborhood. How do you bridge? The gap some of us are very good at this. I'm not just talking about being very hospitable some of us were scared to death of having people in our home, and, that, and that's okay But in what ways can we use this good gift of a meal and being intentional to build relationships for God's good purposes? Let's move on three Let's talk about the table of Jesus. We've looked at table fellowship in general, and now I want to look briefly for a moment specifically at the table fellowship of Jesus because it is here that it is not the only thing, but it is a primary way in which we see a model for us to be intentional and the way in which God was intentional for us because everything that Jesus does in that Last Supper uh, affects the rest of humanity for all of history. So turn with me to Luke chapter 22 for a moment. We're going to look at Luke's recollection of the Lord's last meal. And I want to look really briefly at table fellowship because we could get lost in the weeds here, and so I don't want to do that. I just want to show you that Jesus sets a pattern of discipleship for us. And when we think about table, we're thinking, again, not necessarily just the Lord's Supper, but we're thinking a pattern of relational relationship building, intentional relationship Spending time with people and pairing that with the gospel of God. Luke chapter 22 verses 14 through 21. When the hour came, he reclined at the table. He reclined at the table with the apostles. And then he said to them, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. He's leveraging the the Passover meal, this table meal that was a remembrance of the Exodus. He's leveraging this now for his own purposes. Verse 16, I tell you, I will not eat again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And then he took the cup, and after giving thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. After they had drank from the cup, and probably after they had eaten some of the meal, because that... That portion of the meal was basically the appetizing meal that was he basically took the wine and said hey guys let's let's start this meal but I want to tell you to as you drink this remember me take this cup give thanks to God which was which is typical pattern of the Jewish Passover meal but it was also a typical pattern of meals together anyway and then he says then he took the bread first the cup then the bread the bread was broken And he gave thanks. He gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them and said, this is my body which is given for you. He breaks it and says, do this in remembrance of me. In other words, whenever you eat this meal, look at this bread, break it, take it, eat it, and remember me. Remember me. And then in the same way, he also took the cup after supper. So two times, he he starts with the cup and he ends with the cup. And he says, after supper, which was the final cup of the Passover meal, which basically pointed to the hope of the joy of the restoration of Israel. He says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So what do we see in this? First, the memory of the Last Supper was turned into a ceremony because something significantly redemptive happened here. And it significantly happened, what significantly happened was that Jesus beyond his death, rose from the grave. That's why they remember. If if Jesus hadn't risen from the dead, no one would care about this meal. Who cares? He was in an upper room. He had a meal, whatever. But the reason why this meal was significant was because Jesus said things and did things and established things here that made them remember and want to celebrate the work that had been done for them. Now, here's where it's important to understand the difference between what is a ritual and what is a ceremony. A ritual is like a rite of passage. It's, it's a line you cross and you don't cross back, like circumcision. Kids, ask your parents what that is. I thought I'd get more of a laugh from that one, but, you know. Uh, rituals are things where you, like marriage. Marriage is a ritual, not a ceremony. Marriage is something you do once and you don't do it again. You don't go through this ritual again of coming up and saying, I do, The ceremony afterwards is also not repeatable, It's, it's not necessarily a ceremony. A ceremony is something to be repeated, award shows are ceremonies, they're things we celebrate. We celebrate people and their accomplishments, we have these ceremonies, the Lord's Supper is a ceremony. We celebrate it as an historic event. It's an accomplishment that was made by Jesus, that's what we celebrate. Uh, I remember uh, my son Jack just graduated high school and I remember his preschool graduation, his middle school graduation, and now his high school graduation. We celebrated that all the time. They were moments of crossing a line and not going back. The ritual of graduation is something that we, we celebrated, but we're not going to celebrate those again. But what we do celebrate are birthdays and anniversaries and things that were like, man, this is, this is ongoing. We want to celebrate it. In the same way, Jesus said this ceremony of Passover is now mine. I'm hijacking it. The Passover is not to be repeated for us because what has happened is that Christ has fulfilled all that the ceremony of Passover pointed to. He was not initiating a new ritual in this meal. And this is important. What he was initiating was a new ceremony, a new celebration. And what is it that we're celebrating? What is it that we're celebrating? We're not celebrating... The literal things of bread and wine. We're not celebrating the meal. We're not celebrating the table. We're celebrating Jesus. We're celebrating the work. The fact that he is the one who has accomplished all that we need. He points to the end supper that will come. He said, I'm not going to eat again of the fruit of the vine until everything is fulfilled. And now we are waiting for everything to be finally restored and fulfilled. Jesus is the one who shielded us from death because of his blood. Jesus is the one who gave his body and it was broken for us. It was given as a sacrificial offering. And when we look at the table, it is not the table that we are meant to linger at, but it's what? It is Christ in heaven who ascended and sits at the right hand of the Father. And it is that that we celebrate, the finished work of Christ. And so when we look at the Lord's Supper... The table of God, what we see is that God has established peace between us through Jesus Christ because of a work that is finished. And so we intentionally celebrate the Lord's Supper, not because we have to, but because we want to. And even then, we don't have to do it every week. We don't have to do it in the way that we choose to do it. It is simply a means by which we gather together As those who look at Jesus as our Lord and our Savior, the one who shed his blood and shielded us from death, the one who sits physically in heaven right now, the one who tells us to look to the future, and we proclaim his death until he returns, remembering him, lifting his eyes, we celebrate that. The Spirit takes what belongs to Christ and makes it known to us. Jesus said that in John 16, 14. He says that the Spirit reveals all things, will reveal all things. And all that Christ has done for us lies in the possession of the Spirit. That's, that's how our joy is stirred. It's because the Spirit in us, when we remember Christ, there's nothing magical happening in eating the bread or drinking the wine. What's happening is that the Spirit rejoices at our remembering Christ, and Christ reveals Himself to us, and we have joy. That's what's going on. That's why we do it, because it is a means to an end of celebrating Christ. And communing with Christ, and communing with one another, through the bond of the Spirit. One Lord, one baptism, one Spirit. We are bound together by the Spirit. And around the table, Psalm 37, we delight in the Lord. That's what we do. We don't delight in the bread or the wine. We delight in what it reminds us of and points us to. And the Spirit says, delight in the Lord. We might say then that God provides for us in communion that Jesus said, we're going to need something visible to, to put our arms around when He ascends. And so He institutes the ceremony that he gives his church and the church celebrates over and over again, not because it earns them anything, not because it saves them, but simply because it gives them delight in Christ. And when we delight in Christ, Christ delights in us, and then we are bound by that delight. John Calvin calls them visible words, and he says that it is grace on display. I Love that term, grace on display. It's like a beautifully painted a picture hanging in a museum that strikes your eye, or it's a, it's a, it's a firework display that you're mesmerized because it, they work you up to the end finale, and then next thing you know, they're just launching everything they can. I love, who you know the end of the fireworks display where it's just like, there's like that lull in the, the in the, in the display, and then you're like, oh man, here it comes. If it doesn't come, this, this fireworks display, right? You have this thought, it's like, is there more? Because this would really stink if it's not more. And then all of a sudden, they're like, poof, poof and they just light an entire arsenal and you're like yes It's glory on display in the same way that's what we do we gather around the supper to say look at what christ has done and accomplished for us the simplicity of the gospel is present in the Lord's table. It is communicated to us through the Lord's table. He offers himself to us in the Lord's table. And that is what the table represents. God through Christ initiating relationship with us. And anyone is invited to the table. Go out into the world. Make disciples of all day. Invite them in. Invite them. Whether they respond or not is, up to, is not up to us but we invite them to the table and the grace of God. And we celebrate that each week because it reminds us of God's intentionality through Christ and it and it encourages us as we together celebrate it. But then how do we translate that to the rest of the life of our church? How do we translate that? Christ grips us in the word that is proclaimed and read And then that same Christ is made known at the table, and sometimes it's better grasped there, but then once we grasp it, what do we do with it? Number four, and finally, table fellowship in the life of the church. How does the Lord's table translate into our discipleship? It's both a means to be strengthened by and also a model of God's intentional love for us. I hope I've made that clear, that it is the initiation of friendship. Then when we think about table and table fellowship, it's not just confined to the Lord's Supper. It is certainly one of the ways in which we are strengthened by that supper and that table, but it is not confined there. In Acts chapter 2 through 6, you'll you'll see that Luke, sometimes you can go go read through just the first six chapters of uh, the Acts of the Apostles. And you'll see that Luke records that the Lord's Supper was in the context of a fellowship meal. There was a meal that had horizontal dimension where they were binding themselves together, caring for one another in their common faith in Jesus. And it made them stronger for one another. And so in the same way, the church binds themselves together as they fellowship with one another. When we take the Lord's Supper and we use it as a model, we see it played out through the life of the church in in Luke, in the Acts of of the Apostles. And what we see is we see that there's this balance between the Lord's Supper... In homes. In fact, you might want to make an interesting note that the worship, the teaching, the preaching, and the singing was done at the temple, but then they carried the Lord's Supper into homes. And so they didn't necessarily originally incorporate the Lord's Supper into the flow of worship, which means that the New Testament doesn't say a whole lot about how we're to do it historically, it adapted itself into the corporate worship and discipleship life of the church, which is why we ought to hold very loosely the way in which we practice the Lord's Supper. We also ought to hold very loosely the ways in which we speak and are so uh, constricted about what the Lord's Supper accomplishes, how the bread and the wine is administrated, who can do that. Those are the things that can uh, get us distracted. But what we do see is we see that the lord's supper was central to the life of the church and then if they decided to translate that into the corporate worship for means of context or culture or history it's okay it doesn't make it better that it's in homes it doesn't make it worse that it's in corporate worship it simply is a means again to an end to what to remind us of a relationship with jesus and so when we think about table fellowship here in the in the context of our local church. Here are the four ways in which we want to see that table fellowship played out. One, in corporate worship. We intentionally incorporate the Lord's Supper weekly into our Sunday corporate worship because there is something that is happening. The Spirit is encouraging us. I want us to lift our eyes to Jesus, and even though it's probably not as close to what the early church practice, it doesn't make it a bad thing, and so What we do is we do that each week because it is a great softball pitch to the gospel that is proclaimed in the word, and then we just want to apply it and remind ourselves that we are bound by the spirit of Christ and that he is the one who has saved us and nothing else. We experience table fellowship in our home groups. We experience table fellowship when we are together over a meal. We experience table fellowship when we are one-on-one over breakfast or lunch, if we're in one another's homes. It's during these times that we actually may experience table fellowship more closely to the original pattern of Jewish fellowship or Christian uh, fellowship or the Lord's Supper, but it's not necessarily, like I said, better because of that. In both of these scenarios, in both our corporate worship and the reason why we emphasize home groups is because in both of these scenarios, what we do is we want to lift our eyes to Jesus in a corporate setting and also in a more intimate home group setting, remembering Jesus in our communion, our binding with him. We see table fellowship in the context of discipleship groups. Table fellowship occurs one-on-one. We're not doing the Lord's Supper. Again, that's what I'm saying. Table does not just mean Lord's Supper. When I'm sitting across the table from Jeff Valentino at Whole Foods on Thursdays, We're not sharing the Lord's Supper, but we are intentionally building relationship with one another. When I reach out to my neighbors, when we reach out to our neighbors, when we host a Christmas party in our home and we invite our neighbors to come and just stop by when they can, we are initiating relationship. Why? Because we want them to know Jesus. And if God in his mercy leads conversations and more times together so that that person might know the grace and the gospel of Jesus Christ, so be it. I'm glad I had a meal with them. So in our discipleship groups, in the women's discipleship groups on Mondays, or men's on Wednesdays or the ones on Fridays, or, or the groups that you have on your own, table fellowship is seen there, too. Why? Because it's intentional friendship, intentional fellowship. And finally, we see table fellowship in our community outreach. We reach out and we do things to pull people together, because, again, that's what God did. He, he initiated relationship. He says, "Hey, come to the table." Come, be gathered. And so it doesn't have to be a meal. It can be an outreach. It can be a meal. But again, we engage the community who is lost. For those who do not know Jesus yet, that's why we do those things. Not because we want to do stuff that interrupts our schedules or not because we want to come up with fun events, but because we want people to connect with Jesus. And so why do we as a church, when we talk about we want to be rooted in God's word, and gathered regularly around God's table. Why do we need routine table fellowship? Because bonds of friendship need attending to. It's like the ties on a boat. If you have ever uh, seen a sailor's knot when it's tied up onto the dock, they make sure that it ties over itself so that when the rope pulls, it tightens on itself, and it can easily be let go, but it tightens on itself so that the boat stays right there. And in the same way, like a lug nut on the bus. you ever see those arrows on your school buses? I always wondered why they were. It's so that if there's any movement of that lug nut, the the mechanic can fix it and make sure that they're all aligned and they're tight. Friendships need attending to. We do this regularly, not because we want to busy ourselves. We don't want to be too busy, but table fellowship, like ropes or bolts, are holding important things together. We celebrate it, consistently because we want to hold ourselves, bind ourselves together in friendship. Not just with one another, but with who? With Christ. We want to bind ourselves together with one another and with Christ. So, may we continually ask for the Lord's grace as we seek to be rooted in God's Word, gathered around this table, and next week we'll talk about what it means to be led by God's Spirit. The sermon you've just listened to is a presentation of Church Newtown Square. To find out more about our church, check out churchnsq.org. That's C-H-V-R-C-H-N-S-Q.org. You are welcome to copy and distribute this sermon to others as long as you do not do it for commercial purposes or alter, transform, or build upon this talk in any way.